Well, my dear friends, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road when he saw him, and he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and he saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. May he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Oh Lord, what other glory consumes like fire? What other power can raise the dead? What other name remains undefeated? It is only a holy God. And so as we approach your word, Father, we ask that you would show us your glory and that you would make us more like Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 2017, I'll never forget what it was like. I was going through what some affectionately call the trials of ordination. I don't think it's a very affectionate title to give it. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's an examination process in which you stand in a sanctuary like this before a whole room of seasoned pastors and elders. Men who, by experience and time and study, are experts in pastoral ministry. And when you're standing before them, they can ask you any question that they desire. They can ask you anything dealing with Bible, theology, church polity, and church history. And it is quite intimidating when you're a young man standing there and you don't have a lot of experience behind you. And you also don't necessarily know where everyone is coming from. It's easy to feel sometimes like maybe there's a trick question or a trap or one of those kind of I got you moments. So I remember in my examination process there are questions like, Give us an outline of the book of Romans. 
Or where would you turn in scripture and look at like infant baptism and how would you explain that to a member? You're like, okay, I can, I can get on board with those. I'm tracking. And then I remember coming to church history and we were blasting through the church history portion and there was an individual who asked me, please tell us who John Witherspoon was and his significance as a Presbyterian minister. I had no idea who that was. I'd never heard that name in my life. And you're standing there before all these men and you kind of have to say, okay, I don't know. Well, you're all going to win a trivia contest someday because John Witherspoon is the only Presbyterian minister who happened to sign the Declaration of Independence. Like, I didn't know what that had to do with anything, but it was a tough question. <laughs> I felt trapped. We have an expert of the law who's coming to Jesus and putting him to the test. But before we get to that, let's consider the context of where we are in Christ's life. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John, they get to witness that glorious moment when the, when the veil is kind of removed and Jesus is there with Moses and Elijah and he's in his glory and they're talking about the future exodus. And after that takes place, there's this interesting line in verse 52 in which Luke says that Jesus, when the days were near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So this is the beginning of the end. He's now making his final journey to the city of Jerusalem for the final Passover so that he can go and die on the cross for our sins. All of his ministry experience is behind him. There have been moments in time where he's been put to the test before and now he's making his way to this great moment, to this intimidating and frightening moment moment in which he will die on the cross. And as he's going, he sends out 72 of his disciples in pairs to kind of prepare the way. And they go and they're preaching about Christ and they're preparing these little villages that he's coming. And they return back and he's speaking with them and he's instructing them. And it's at this point that this law expert stands up and look at verse 25. He puts Jesus to the test. There's suspect intentions in what he's about to ask. And a question, as, as good Bible readers as we all are, we should be asking, when will these guys learn? Don't put Jesus to the test, right? You know, Michael Jordan was notorious for this. There would be guys who, for whatever reason, would feel like Jordan's not playing that great. I better say something and poke the bear. If you go home this afternoon and you search guys who trash talk Michael Jordan and immediately regret it, you have hours of interviews to watch. And I'm not exaggerating. He is the greatest basketball player of all time. He is the greatest of all time. And there are two instances that come to mind. One, it's preseason. Jordan has played for years. He's just going through the motions. He's got four points on the board. It's almost halftime, and they're playing the Indiana Pacers. The Pacers had just drafted Reggie Miller, and he is chomping at the bit. He is one of the greatest three-point shooters of all time. 
Reggie Miller in the first half has 10 points, most of which he scored over Jordan. And one of his teammates comes up to him and is like, man, rookie, you are doing great. You need to say something to Jordan. He looks like he's just all out of sorts. And Reggie foolishly agrees. And so he walks over right before they're going to the locker room and he says to Jordan, hey man, I just want you to know there's a new kid in town and your time has passed. Jordan stares at him. Nothing is said. They go to the locker room. They come back out and Reggie Miller says it's one of the greatest regrets he's ever had. <laughs> Jordan goes off for 44 points. Reggie scores two more buckets and ends with 14. It's a preseason game. It doesn't matter. Don't poke the bear. One other instance that has even more weight to it. Jordan's retired. He's playing baseball. Turns out his good buddies, Carl Malone and John Stockton, are in town with the Utah Jazz to play the Bulls. Jordan thinks, I'm going to pop in at practice and just say hello. As he's there, a rookie by the name of Brian Russell comes up to him. It says, man, why'd you quit? Why'd you retire? Oh, I know why. It's because you heard I was coming. You heard I was coming into the league and that I was the one who had put a stop to you. Okay? Jordan said immediately when that happened, Russell went on his list. There would be payback. You know what? Guess who the Bulls end up facing in Jordan's last NBA final with the Chicago Bulls? It's the Utah Jazz. They're playing the Jazz. It's game six. Bulls win and they get the championship. All they need is a two-point basket. Ball's in Jordan's hands with 20 seconds left. Guess who's covering him? Russell. Jordan fakes to the right, pulls back to the left. Russell sprawls out on the floor. Looked like he tripped over himself almost. And Jordan hits an easy floater for the win. And he goes on in an interview and says... I told you he was on my list. You gave him the fuel. You poked the bear, and he was ready to answer. Time and time and time again, throughout Jesus' ministry, there are priests, there are scribes, there are Pharisees who try to put him to the test, who try to trap him with their questions. He's been asked about laws concerning Sabbath, taxes, divorce, and sin. And over and over again, he wipes the floor with those who try to show him up. When will they learn? It's no different here in our text. Here's this lawyer, an expert in Old Testament law. He comes up to Jesus and he says, I've got a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is a master teacher. He turns it right back to the guy and says, you tell me. You're the expert in the law. Like when you go fly fishing, I love to fly fish, you put that fly in just the right spot and it lands just so perfectly and softly, the fish can't help but bite. They slam it. I don't think the words got out of Jesus' mouth before the guy was already reciting his answer. He was ready to go. He quotes Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. He says, in order to have eternal life, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you must love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you are absolutely right. And the bead of sweat begins to form 
on this expert of the law. He's not expecting Jesus to say that. And he's concerned because he's given such a broad answer that he may not be able to actually keep it and inherit the life that he's looking to inherit. So he asks Jesus the second question. Well, who is my neighbor? He wants to justify it. He wants to narrow the law down. He wants to put specific boundaries up in order to say, I can do it. I can keep the law perfectly, continuously. The Pharisees were great at this. Some, some scholars think that the Pharisees would take, who is your neighbor? They would take that line and they'd say, well, that means only other Pharisees. So as long as I love them well and treat them like a neighbor, all is good. For the average Israelite, who was very ethnocentric at this time, they had some kind of circles that they would draw around who is my neighbor. And so you would say like, at the center, here's the Israelite, then the next circle out would be my family members. And then after my immediate family, I'd go out and say, well, other members of my tribe. So if I'm in Judah or Benjamin or Dan or any of the other tribes, Levi, those people need to be considered my neighbors. And then finally, you might say that the last circle for who is my neighbor would be other Israelites. Anyone who is born in the house of Israel, they count as a neighbor. But everyone outside of that, that is not my responsibility. I have no duty or obligation to them. Keeping the law means I love other Israelites well. And at this point in time in Jerusalem and in Israel, you've got to remember there was this massive influx of people coming from all over the world. You've got the Romans who are present. The, you've got, you know, the Greeks who are present. There are Samaritans coming into town. There are people from all over the world coming in. And so this question about who is my neighbor was a question that lots of people had. Well, Jesus is so far ahead of this guy, and he has got, he's got him in his sights, miles ahead of him. So when he asks, who is my neighbor, Jesus replies with one of the most well-known parables of all time, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the details that he provides, I think, are fascinating. And they give us a greater depth of understanding to what Jesus is doing with this individual who's asking the question. So look at verses 30 through 32. Jesus begins by replying with a story about a man who is going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed from him, leaving him half dead. Now Jesus doesn't say there was an Israelite or a man from the tribe of Judah or one of the Pharisees. He doesn't say that there was a Roman or a Hittite or something like that. He just says that this is a random person who's completely and totally unidentifiable. Not only do we not know from Jesus' description of who he is, but because he's been beaten and had his clothes stolen, we can't identify him in that way. And because he's likely unconscious, being half dead, he can't answer the question of where are you from. And so if you're that law expert and you're hearing this question be answered, you're starting to get nervous. Well, who is my neighbor? Well, there's a man who's in need. 
You know, the Jerusalem road was extremely dangerous between Jericho and Jerusalem. It was 17 miles long. It had been given the nickname, the Ascent of Blood. It had caves and rock outcroppings all over the place for nefarious figures to hide and to attack, their in, to attack individual travelers. So everyone's kind of familiar with this is something that could actually happen. This is something that could actually happen. And so when I think about kind of the nerves of the law expert who's trying to get his question answered, I started thinking about, we're going to take a mental break. You can take a sip of coffee. I started thinking about, you remember in 2023, there was that privately owned submersible called the Titan that went down to take like tourists to see the Titanic. I'm still confused. There were no windows or anything. And, you know, it was controlled by a video game controller, but you know, there were people who would pay lots of money to go down to where the Titanic was. And tragically, in 2023, you know, it imploded on itself. And the five passengers who were in there, they sadly died. What you might not know is that just a few months or maybe a few years earlier, an expert in submarine construction and safety had taken a trip on the Titan. And he said as they approached just the low level of 300 feet, he began to hear structural cracking and fracturing in the body of the sub. So much so that he was afraid for his life and he insisted that they bring the sub back up to the surface. And he wrote to his friend who was the CEO of the company OceanGate and said, you can't send people down in this. It is unsafe. Like if we were in that, if we were in that little submersible and we were going down, I guarantee you the sound of the first crack you would be looking for an exit, but there's no way out. You just got to go up. This guy is regretting putting Jesus to the test. The question, who is my neighbor, is starting to be answered, and the fractures and the cracks are beginning to get louder and louder. And the next thing that Jesus says, it's quite, it's quite intimidating for this guy, I think. Look at the next verse, 31. Now by chance, who shows up? A priest was going down the road when he saw him, but he passed on the other side. You would expect the priest to be the one to stop. And there's all sorts of reasons why you would think he would be the one to stop. He loves God. He serves in the temple. The priest would have had finances available to them to give aid to people in need. And because he's leaving Jerusalem and going down to Jericho, he's got some time on his hands. He's not going up to serve. He's now going home to be with his family. And he probably won't have to be back in Jerusalem for a week or two. So he's got means and he's got time. But what Jesus says, he doesn't get into the motive. He just says, he sees the man, he goes to the other side of the road, and he continues on his way. That's one of those fractures, one of those cracks. Who's going to be the hero of the story? Keep reading. Next guy that comes in verse 32, a Levite. He came to the place where the man was. He saw him, and he passed by on the other side. Same situation. He's leaving his duties in Jerusalem. He's going down to Jericho. He's got time. He's got money. He could stop and help. But instead, seeing the man lying half dead in the road, he goes to the other side and continues on his way. The expectation is that the next person to come will be an Israelite. And that will be the hero of the story. 
But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus chooses something that is extremely provoking. He says it's a Samaritan. It's a Samaritan who shows up and is filled with compassion. And that's the point of implosion in what Jesus is saying. Because we need to understand just a little bit about who the Samaritans were and what their relationship was like with the Israelites. The bad blood goes way back. It is very deep between the Samaritans and the Israelites. After the northern kingdom, Israel, had been conquered by the Assyrians and they were exiled out of the land, Israelites get to return and instead of returning to worship as they ought to, centering and focusing in on Jerusalem and the temple. These Israelite exiles return. They begin to intermarry with other nations. And they decide that Mount Gerizim would be a great site to build their own temple, to offer their own sacrifices, to set up their own priesthood. And to the Israelites, this was an absolute abomination. It was abhorrent in their eyes. And so they viewed Samaritans to be half-breeds, to be heretics. They viewed them as betrayers. In between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Jews enter into all these different wars, and the Samaritans never take their side. They always fight against their brothers, in a sense. And so there was big-time hate. So much so that if you had to go you know, from one city to another— and the fastest route was to go through Samaria. If you were an Israelite, you avoided it at all costs. You extended your time. You went around the boundaries of Samaria rather than go through this place where you deemed these people to be so awful. So it's the last person that you would expect that Jesus turns into the hero. I think putting it into a modern context can help us feel the tension a little bit. And so one commenter that I was listening to, he talked about this, and he put it in light of our, our political kind of structure today. And he said this would be just like if you had a Republican or a Democratic president who came along and saw a man lying half dead on the road and passed by. And then you have a Republican or a Democrat senator who sees the man, he goes right on by, he doesn't stop to help. And then who's the despised outsider that comes and shows compassion and mercy with no concern for their own well-being? Is it the illegal immigrant who's just crossed the border? Is it the MAGA-wearing, gun-toting conservative? Jesus is purposely creating tension by choosing the Samaritan. He's not commenting on the rights and wrongs of what's been done. He's not commenting on the theology or the practice of what's been seen. What he's trying to do is get at the heart of the law expert to show the lovelessness that the others who you would expect to be the hero have failed to show. So look at what he says. The details, remember, Details are important. He provides so much more information about this Samaritan than he does about the priest and the Levite. It's supposed to be a stark contrast between the two. He says the Samaritan is the one who journeyed, and when he saw the man, he was filled with compassion. He went to him, he bound up his wounds, he poured oil and wine on the man. I mean, he's, 
He steps into the gutter in a sense and gets his hands dirty as he cleans the dirt and the wounds from this man who's dying, who he does not know from Adam, a complete and total stranger. He could still be in trouble. There could still be robbers waiting to take his life too, but it doesn't stop him. He takes the time to care for the man who's desperately in need. He binds him up. He places him on his own animal. He takes him all the way to Jericho. He finds a safe place for them to stay overnight in an inn. And then he provides the finances that are necessary for this man to be able to recover for at least two weeks, maybe more. And he promises that if the man incurs any other debt, he'll return and he will pay it. The Samaritan saves the life of the man in need. He literally saves his life. His actions are salvific. And so this is extremely convicting because what Jesus is doing is he is trying to cause his listener to see the way in which defining neighbor is actually a picture of what's going on in the heart. It's not a question about who is my neighbor. Jesus is, is expanding this to say, everyone is your neighbor. And so the lawyer is forced to acknowledge it. He's now the one who's put to the test. When Jesus says at the end of the parable, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer's forced to say, it's the one who showed him mercy. It's interesting, he doesn't say it was the Samaritan. He says it's the one who showed him mercy. Well, I think this parable works on kind of three different levels, okay? I think Jesus is doing several different things by telling this wonderful story. The first of which is what we've already discussed. He's using it to answer the very first question that's asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life. Instead of narrowing it down to make it doable, Jesus expands the definition of neighbor, and now this man has to face the reality that he cannot earn it. He can't do it. He can't be the neighbor that's required. And so there's a great need that he's faced with. It's like when, when you know, David and Nathan, when there's that confrontation and Nathan confronts David with his sin and he tells that parable, and then when David gets so upset about the man who stole the other man's sheep, Nathan says, you are that man, David, and conviction hits, that's this kind of thing here. The law expert needs to be convicted of his understanding. You know, something I forgot to mention, but I think is interesting to note, Jesus takes this story about a Samaritan. He's speaking to an expert of the Old Testament, and I think he's drawing this exact story from an actual event that took place in Numbers, or in Second Chronicles 28. When King Ahaz is king, and the Jews are beaten and taken away out of their country, and they come to Samaria, and they're, they're they're beaten, they have lost all their goods, some of them are naked, and what Chronicles records in that passage is this interesting little text in which the Samaritans, designated by name, took the prisoners from the, and the, from the plunder, they clothed all who were naked. 
They provided them with clothes and sandals, food and drink, healing balm. All those who were weak, they put on their donkeys. And so they took them back to their fellow countrymen at Jericho. The Samaritans had done this before. And so it should have been maybe a little bit expected. But the man, he's being shocked. He's being told to wake up and see the truth. That's the first level. The second level of this parable is that Christ is, in fact, the fulfillment of the Good Samaritan. From the earliest days of the church, the church fathers on through church history have understood this parable to point to Jesus Christ as the true Good Samaritan. Because as we lie dead in our sin, in the street, with no life in us, he is the one who comes from outside, leaving the glories of heaven. And he comes and he cleans the wounds. And he gives us life. And he provides for our needs. And he's the one who promises to come again. And so the man should see his need. And we get to see the way in which that need can be met through Christ. And then the third layer that builds on those two, and I think is application for us, has to do with the final words that Jesus says in this passage. He says to the man, you go and do likewise. Part of the purpose of the parables that Jesus tells is to instruct us as Christians of what it means to live as citizens of his kingdom in this fallen world. And so what we are to do is to see this story and to see the way in which Christ has shown us so much mercy and kindness and compassion. And in seeing it, in experiencing it, in singing about it, in praying about it, in reading about it, in, in getting ourselves involved in understanding the kind of mercy and grace he has shown us, then in turn we will be a people who show compassion and mercy and kindness to any and everyone whom we come into contact with. Not perfectly, but by the power of his Holy Spirit, as he sanctifies us and makes us more like Christ, then hopefully our lives will reflect the kind of love and mercy and compassion that he has shown us. You know, it's a, it's a very convicting parable because when I think about it in, in the closest sense of how do I love my family or show compassion or mercy to my family, it's easy to see the ways that we fail. And then you broaden it out. What about with my brothers and sisters here in this church? Broaden it out. What about the people that I work with or the kids that I go to school with or the teachers that I have? And then you broaden it out. What about the strangers that I meet in the grocery store or at the gym? How am I expressing the love of Jesus Christ to these people? And the ways in which I'm failing, it's a reminder to me that I need to repent and then I need to look to Christ and be reminded of the ways in which his love has changed me. You know, Christ calls us to be ambassadors for him in this world. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2, he says, But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us 
to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. You know, do we reflect Christ? Does our life reflect who he is and what he has done? We have opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to show people the kind of love he has shown us so that they might experience it for themselves too. What a privilege we have. Paul also writes in Colossians 3, he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Friends, cultivate a love for Jesus Christ. Get to know personally what it means that he was willing to come and die for you. What it means that he showed such compassion and mercy and grace to you. And I promise you that by his Holy Spirit, he will use that to express himself to others in your life. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, help us to remember as we, as we read the words we are about to sing, that you are the one who welcomes the weakest, the vilest, and the poor. And that though our sins are many, your mercy is more. What riches of kindness, Lord, you've lavished on us. The blood of Christ was the payment and his life was the cost. We stood beneath that debt we could never afford. Oh Lord, our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. Amen.